At our opening Eucharist, we reflected on the fledgling church as we find it in Jerusalem in Acts 2. A church that's not just a snapshot, but a blueprint of how the church in the power of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be. And I suggested too that what we see in Acts 2 is a great example of the church breathing in in the power of the Spirit as the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The image of the church breathing in is of course entirely legitimate and biblical because it draws on the biblical imagery of the Spirit of God as the wind, the breath of God, the Ruach Adonai, which we see, for instance, so powerfully at work in Ezekiel's image of the dry bones. Even though flesh is put upon the bones, which is a distinct improvement, they're not alive until filled with the Ruach Adonai, the spirit, the breath of the living God. But of course, in talking about a breathing in, in mission, so that people are drawn into the life of the Christian community, we're only telling Half the story, breathing in by itself is not enough. Health and life itself depend on inhalation and on exhalation too. And talk of exhalation brings us both to our Gospel reading from John 20 and also takes us somewhere else in Acts, as we'll see shortly. In John 20, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says to his disciples, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathes out upon them and sends them out in mission. If you ask me theologically what it is I'm particularly interested in, I would say, probably a little pompously, that I'm really interested in the intersection between Christology, ecclesiology and missiology. But perhaps it would be better to say, I'm really interested in that sweet spot where Jesus, church and mission meet. And this point in John 20 is just that sweet spot. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There you've got the church, the disciples. You have Jesus who breathes upon them and you have their mission which turns out to be the mission of Jesus himself. As the Father sends me, so I send you. As Jesus is sent to be about his Father's business in the power of the Spirit, well, so are we too, just as he was. We're breathed out, exhaled by the Spirit for that purpose. That is our calling as a church. And if you want to see that illustrated biblically, you can do no better than move from Jerusalem and Acts 2 to somewhere else in Acts. We're moving north and over to the coast and up to the city of Antioch, and we're going to visit the new church that's just been set up there that we heard about in our first reading. We skipped Acts 12, by the way, because that takes us back to Jerusalem, to Peter's escape from prison, and to Herod's grisly, worm-eaten death. Now, this church in Antioch certainly knows how to breathe in. Antioch was the third city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria, the capital of the province of Syria, though today it's just in modern Turkey and was hit not long ago by a devastating earthquake. It lay a few miles up the river Orontes from its port Seleucia, which gets a mention in Acts 13. 
And in this city, you'd find people from all kinds of cultural and ethnic backgrounds from as far away as India and China. We have historic records which show that. And the Christians who came to this city, who themselves came from fairly cosmopolitan places like Cyprus and Cyrene rather than monochrome Jerusalem, they shared the good news of Jesus not just with their fellow Jews, but with Greeks as well, with non-Jews. They are people who, in the terms of Orthodox Judaism, were beyond the pale. But astonishingly, we are told, they respond to the good news of Jesus in considerable numbers, and so find themselves no longer on the outside looking in, but incorporated within this amazing church, this amazing community, which is taking shape in Antioch. They're drawn in, breathed in, into community by the Holy Spirit. This church was, as churches really should be, a reflection of the place and people it came from, as diverse a place as Antioch itself, a community of Jews and Gentiles with cultural roots from all over the place. There were people of different ethnicities too. Simeon called Niger, who we hear about in 13 verse 1, was black. That's what Niger means. So this was a genuinely, ethnically and culturally diverse church that grew up in the city, quite unlike the very monocultural church in Jerusalem. But it was living proof that the good news of Jesus really is for everyone. A lot of breathing in has gone on, and a lot of people have been drawn into the body of Christ here in Antioch. As I say, this church was quite unlike the church in Jerusalem because it was so diverse. Indeed, this church was a challenge to the church in Jerusalem. Was it actually an authentic church? Was it kosher? Or was it horribly corrupted and compromised by having all these Gentiles in it? The Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to check it out. Now, Barnabas is one of my heroes. Luke calls him a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And he knows the grace of God when he sees it. So he rejoices in what he finds and plays his part in building up the church with the result that even more people are added to it. Even more breathing in goes on. In fact, so much breathing in goes on that rather than bursting, the church in Antioch eventually breathes out, and they breathe out in a great whoosh, as in Acts 13, they release Paul and Barnabas and John Mark for the work of mission. Now, this is not the first time that the church has engaged in mission in Acts. But this time it's different. Up to now, the good news has come to be spread through either circumstances such as persecution or through the direct intervention of the Lord, for instance, by sending Philip to meet the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. But now the church takes direct action in launching this mission movement and commissioning Paul and Barnabas for it. It's the first time the church has really deliberately breathed out no wonder it's such a big whoosh. There is a lot to let out. The church deliberately breathes out, but they only do so because the Lord tells them to. This is, after all, mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit who tells the church to set these two men aside for mission, probably through one of the prophets we hear about. And this church was clearly <clears throat> waiting expectantly on the Lord for him to act. They fast and pray both before and after the Spirit speaks to them. 
But nonetheless, this church takes a much more active role in initiating this work of mission than has ever happened before. It's the first time the church has really deliberately breathed out in mission. And it was a costly thing for them to do. They're giving away some of their brightest and best talent. They could have reasoned themselves out of it and questioned whether that was really what the Spirit meant. Perhaps he just wanted Paul and Barnabas to take a more senior role in the church in Antioch. And by the way, when I say he in referring to the Holy Spirit, I do recognise that other personal pronouns are available. Whether we say he or she, we should never say it, for the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. But anyway, they could have asked whether this was really what the Spirit wanted. Is it really sensible to just give key people like this away? It would have been very easy for them to rationalise their way out of this, but they don't. They obey, they breathe out, and they launch this amazing mission. And it was an amazing mission because it had amazing consequences. Because of their sacrifice and because of their commitment to mission, churches sprang up across the whole Roman world through the mission of Paul and Barnabas and many others. And often the churches they established launched out in mission themselves until the good news of Jesus reached as far as northwest Europe and even across the sea to the cold, foggy island the Romans called Britannia. But let's go back to Antioch for a moment. Have you ever wondered why it was that according to Acts 11.26, it was at Antioch the disciples were first called Christians? One reason might be that the people of Antioch were famous for their wit, and this was the kind of thing they did, giving nicknames to people, and in this case to a group of people. But there's a deeper reason that's all to do with their deep diversity. By this point in the life of the church, there was nothing else to call them other than Christians, because the only thing they had in common was that they were followers of Jesus Christ. It was following Jesus, and following Jesus alone, which gave them their fundamental identity. So even if it was a kind of nickname, it's uncannily accurate and perceptive and gets to the heart of the matter. These people were above all, first and foremost, Christ people. It was Jesus alone who they had in common, and Jesus alone who gave them their common identity. And that led to something else too. It's no coincidence that it was at this point, once they've discovered their fundamental identity in Christ, that the spread of the gospel really begins with this breathing out and the commissioning of Paul and Barnabas for mission. Maybe once the Christians in Antioch realised that following Jesus was the only thing they had in common, then they realised the good news of Jesus really was for absolutely everyone. Let me repeat that because I think it's just so important. Once they realised that following Jesus was the only thing they had in common, then they realised that the good news of Jesus really was for absolutely everyone, for people different from them, as well as people like them. And that was why at this point they breathe out and set out on mission. And there's a great lesson and a great challenge for the church in this. It's a natural human tendency for people to gather with other people who are like them. But it's not supposed to be like that in the church of God. Here our diversity, such as it may be, 
is a great gift. The more diverse we are, the more you realise that it's Jesus alone we have in common, the more you'll realise that this good news of Jesus really is for everyone. And the more you realise that Jesus really is for everyone, the more eager you'll be to share him with others too. We should pursue diversity because everyone has a right to be breathed into the Christian community. We're not supposed to be a club of clones, but we should pursue it too because the more diverse we are, the better we'll be at breathing out. And I do believe it's essential to our clerical calling so to curate the life of the church so that its diversity is enhanced, which may call us to exercise a truly prophetic and therefore costly ministry in the places where we're called to serve, not least if that means that in the process we have to disturb the comfortable. And that breathing out that we see in Antioch is costly too. You're losing someone. You're often losing, losing your very best. People involved in church planting know that very well. Often you're giving away your brightest and your best people. There is real loss involved. But some people too have a particular calling to be breathed out and are uncomfortable if they're kept inside the church. If that's their calling, then we need to release them and let them go. We used to call the pioneering people we trained in mission in CMS people with the gift of not quite fitting in. And often they fit in much better outside the church than inside because that's where our God has called them and it's what he's gifted them to do. So if you are one of those people, please be assured you're not that odd and you're not alone. And if you're not one of those people but know others that are, then encourage them in their calling. They're an essential part of our breathing out. I do think a key role of ordained ministers and church leaders is to make space for such people. And that making space can also prove to be costly because it too may well mean we have to disturb the comfortable in the process. And at this point, let me share with you my favourite quote of the moment. So much my favourite quote that I've included it in my email signature. It's from G.K. Chesterton. He says this, The more I considered Christianity the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Yes, we are to attend to the right ordering of the church. That is part of our calling. But we're not to do so as an end in itself or in a heavy-handed, controlling way. Rather, we are to create, to curate space so that the Spirit of God can be at work amongst us, doing the remarkable things only the Spirit of God can do so that good things can run wild amongst us. And that wouldn't be a bad diocesan strapline, would it? The Diocese of Winchester, where good things run wild. This isn't just about individuals. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to free and fire all of our imaginations so that we can breathe out all the more effectively. I may be controversial in saying this indeed, I think I am, but I believe that if the church in the West dies, it will above all because of a failure of imagination 
a failure to imagine in the power of the Spirit just how things, just how church might be different and better. Seeking the new wineskins of innovation and imagination and not trapped, unable to breathe, suffocating in the old paradigms. Or that too may be costly, as in the process we disturb the overcomfortable. But let us nonetheless be people of baptised imagination and innovation. Not people of whim, but people who genuinely seek the Spirit for a better and more fruitful future. I said at the beginning I'm really interested in the intersection between Christology, Ecclesiology and Missiology. That sweet spot where Jesus, Church and Mission meet. And I said that you find that sweet spot in John 20. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. I do believe that was a specific event in one time and in one place. But I believe too that Jesus goes on meeting us in so many ways and he goes on breathing on us, filling us and sending us. The question for us is whether we individually and together are willing to receive his life-giving breath and then be breathed out ourselves in mission with all the disturbing change that might involve. There's also something very noticeable about the book of Acts we do well to attend to in that regard, in the sense of something still going on. At the very start of Acts, Luke says that in his Gospel, his first book, he describes what Jesus began to do. And if the first book is about what Jesus began to do, then the second book, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus continued to do in the life of his church. But think about this too. As you know, Acts begins with a very finely crafted literary introduction, but it doesn't finish like that, not at all. It's far more open-ended in nature, and that's quite deliberate, and the implication is very clear. Because Jesus is still at work by his Spirit in his church, the book is still being written. The story is still being told. It's being written, it's being told in and through us, his church. Jesus is still at work amongst us. So as we prepare to go from here and go back to our diocese, to our churches and chaplaincies and schools and cathedrals or wherever else we serve, let's see ourselves like the disciples, as those on whom Jesus still breathes and whom he still sends. And let's see ourselves as those still set aside, like Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which we have been called, and to which we are still called, and indeed for which, like Saul and Barnabas, we too have received the laying on of hands. So, my sisters and brothers, let's see ourselves like that, humbly confident in who we are in Christ. And after this Eucharist, and indeed after lunch, let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.